Good afternoon. This is Sierra Pay, and I'm here with Henry Gamber and Tyler Redmond. And you are listening to The Long Haul, where we're talking about votes and why they matter in the voting game. And we're talking about the election altogether because it's definitely going to be a long haul. First to talk on the matter, Henry Gamber. Yeah, so, so far I think early voting uh, has been pretty, like the turnout has been pretty insane. Uh, and a lot of people have been using, when they can, uh, in-person absentee voting. Uh, and that has really driven up a lot of turnout. Uh, and an NPR article uh, in an NPR article, it uh, listed, it cited a statistician who calculated that uh, it's predicted that around 150 million people uh, could vote in the 2020 election, which would be a general turnout rate of about 65%, which would be the highest since 1908. Uh, and uh, other estimates could place that number at a lot higher, which is exciting for people who like high turnout. Yeah, just to add on to that, I know um, having studied political science for about four years now, something that we see very often in the United States is we do have that lower voter turnout compared to other countries. So seeing this type of interest, even in the early voting area, is really phenomenal. So uh, if we follow... Um, the Washington Post at the moment just updated tonight uh, at midnight uh, New York time on October 31st. Um, we're seeing Texas has 101% of votes in uh, that total, the number of total votes they had in 2016. So they already have 9 million early votes, which is incredible to see because we already had a fairly high turnout in 2016. And so we're just meeting all of those numbers. Now, I do want to say, and Washington Post does warn, that some of this could be due to COVID. We actually have a lot of participants that would have voted anyway, and they're choosing this early vote or absentee vote to be safe and healthy, which is a very valid option. Um, but in there, they also have a poll that shows about 22% of these votes are people that said they did not vote in that state in 2016. So these could be new voters. They could be people who chose not to vote in 2016. And they could also be uh, members who have moved from a different state. But it's still very exciting to see, regardless of where you're coming from. And that 22% is huge, especially when we think of how large this young adult voting block is getting. Uh, it's greatly uh, starting to outnumber um, our older voting block, which is where we actually see the most activity in voting, is around the 60 to 65 plus area. And seeing young adults actually putting their money where their mouth is or vote where their mouth is really, it, just for me as someone young and into politics is inspiring to see really. What do both of you think that uh, some of the causes for the higher turnout might be? I think for the higher turnout, it's more of, it's partially like what Tyler addressed of the people trying to be safe during COVID and making sure that they're trying to socially distance as much as possible. Um, but also wanting to make their voice heard. But I also think that it could also be possibly, there's a lot more people that want their voice heard. They're realizing that it's necessary to actually speak up if they want a change. They can't constantly be the people that 
don't like who's in office, but never let their voice be heard by voting. So they're wanting to get in there and make their voice heard. They're wanting to like make their voice and their vote to be at least counted to at least have people. So they can't just continue to say things without backing it up with voting itself. There's also just the simple fact that the option for early voting is becoming more and more available in multiple states. So I believe this year we're at about 12 states that have early voting for every citizen in their state, which is huge um, because prior to this election year, I think that number is closer to eight. So we've added more and more states and just giving that option is going to encourage more um, people in general to actually vote in this election. And I think that's kind of just seeing a change in how we're going to possibly do elections from here on out. Um, of course, that also means on election day, we might not know who's going to be president when it comes January. Uh, and as far as that, I mean, that that's like new territory for us, really. I mean, there have been cases in the past, but not due to mail-in voting. And so what, where do we go from there if that does happen? And I think that really can create something very interesting that we'll get to see and watch. Um, and hopefully, you know, it's not terrifying and hopefully it's not people refusing to give up their office or, you know, something that could happen um, that is not a laughable matter. Um, so yeah, that's where we're kind of going, if that makes sense. Do you think that a majority of them are not going to end up being counted? Or do you think they're actually going to be incorporated within the actual voting process? I think in, it really depends on the state. Uh, like in Wisconsin, uh, the Supreme Court did uh, decided not to allow votes that were um, that may come in after November 3rd, even if they are postmarked uh, before November 3rd. Uh, which could potentially limit a lot of votes. Uh, recently, Nate Silver tweeted out, uh, Nate Silver, uh, editor-in-chief of 538, um, recently tweeted out that this could actually end up hurting Republicans, possibly more than Democrats, even though more Democrats use mail-in vote, uh, possibly because Republicans tend to submit uh, their mail-in votes a little bit later, although uh, in states like Wisconsin, we don't know. It's possible it could uh, affect uh, either side. And uh, we will have to see when the election happens, see how many votes aren't counted. I will add on to that, that according to USA Today, and this was earlier predictions, but they were saying there's probably going to be somewhere around a million melon ballots that are cast that will probably be thrown out. And these can be from any type of small errors from a forgotten to be notarized in your state or any type of small errors that could throw these out. But because we're seeing such a large increase in this early voting, I think just how the election is very much so a toss up, I think it's also a toss up on how many melon votes we're actually going to see that actually make it through. But that's also different when you look at the absentee vote because not all absentee is in the same mail-in uh, process. So that's also important to keep in mind. And especially because our elections are so decentralized and a lot of local county election authorities have so much say into what uh, ballots get counted and which ones don't, uh, 
uh, I think it's really going to be a spread over, uh, dependent on who's in charge of the election authority over uh, what and how strict they will be on requirements for ballots with signatures and different things. That being said, I would also like to add that in my home county, um, Green County, Missouri, they actually have the same process for mail-in ballots as they do absentee ballots. So I know a lot of times there is that criticism of, oh, mail-in ballots, you know, they can cheat the system. They're voting for people who aren't, don't exist and this and that. There are places where it's the same exact process as a simple absentee ballot. And I think that's also important to let people know because um, until you look into it and you research it yourself, you're not going to find out. And so that's like why a podcast like this is so important just to educate others so that they can do their civic duty. And that's what voting is. That's what kind of connects us as Americans. Is we all kind of have our voice, but we only have it if we use it. There's a possibility of after the, um, the like whichever candidate ends up becoming elected president, I think there could be the whole argument of, oh, it's the mail-in ballots that didn't get counted are the one, reason that I didn't get elected. I can see that argument being within that as well as like, oh, like these were probably counted wrong. The millions that we had to throw away were the reason that I didn't win. I can see all of those being within an argument of why the candidate that didn't win, didn't win. Yeah, and uh, one thing that I have been seeing, which I'm very glad I have been seeing, uh, promoted through news and social media, uh, is a lot of awareness that it is likely November will be election month and not just uh, November 3rd being election day, uh, which I think will help soothe some of the potential chaos that could arise. But I think that also kind of could worsen things because there's so much pent up stress and anger and all these really strong emotions that Americans are feeling. And when we have an election night, you get a release of those emotions, whether it's good or bad, your guy or woman, they won or they lost. Stretching that into a month after we've already had what feels like a decade long election, especially because we've been quarantined and we've not been able to interact the way that we normally do. I think that could actually create more stresses that we, we're not even sure what those are going to look like yet. Um, so I think it's also important to remember, hey, take a break from politics. There's more to life than this. The president is a very important job, but that's not your life and you, you have to focus on you. And I think that's something, especially when we talk about politics all the time, we also have to express the need to take a step back, you know, and work on you. Because this is a lot for anyone, whether you love it, you're passionate about it, or you can't stand it. it it's a lot. And if we have an election month, you know, good luck to the best of you, you know? Do you guys think that any of the, like, campaigns that have been going on? Because, I mean, with this election, I've seen so many different campaigns with, like, celebrities telling people to go out and vote more and with just everything is telling you to go out and vote. And I do you guys think that contributes to a lot of the early voting and a lot of more of the younger people voting? I think absolutely. That kind of peer pressure, uh, I know every time I go on Instagram, which is about 40 times a day, uh, I get battered with, uh, are you registered to vote? Have you voted? Make sure to vote. Have you voted? Uh, messages. And it's like, I already voted. Uh, but 
I think that kind of constant reminder is setting up this just like pressure um, and especially seeing all throughout, uh, like all my friends posting on their story about how they voted, how you can vote, other voting resources. I think it really makes it easier to vote. Uh, I remember in 2018, the first time I voted, uh, it was uh, really confusing figuring out how to register. Uh, and I definitely wish I had the resources that are out in social media and that kind of world now. Yeah, I will say it's like annoying that every time I'm on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, it's instantly, are you registered to vote? But at the same time, I think that's really helped remind people in a way that we haven't had in the past. And I do think that's great. However, at the same time, I think there's this uh, mismatch when celebrities are asking to vote because as long as they're saying vote for this candidate, I think that can cause a lot of tension, especially when you start looking at the party separation. And I think sometimes that can discourage voting but also you can get into this structure where you have, well, how dare you tell me who to vote for? Sure, that's your person, but how dare you tell me when you live this great Hollywood life and that's nothing like my life? And so I think that's also important to keep in mind, which is why I don't always consider celebrity endorsement the best thing out there um, because they are not, they're out of touch. Um, there's really no way to say it. Just how most of our uh, politicians are out of touch with the average American, Hollywood elite are also out of touch. And I think it's also, or always uh, important rather to look at that and just realize uh, those issues that they can cause um, when it comes to those endorsements. So who do you both think will benefit from the insanely high turnout that we're already seeing? I think it's hard to say because we, if COVID was not a factor, I think it would be easy to say that this is obviously going to benefit the Democratic Party. However, because COVID is a factor, I think it's very possible we could get mixed results and it actually could be, um, and it could be a result we don't expect. I do know in my Washington Post article, I talked about earlier, they have shown that about 44% of these early votes are actual registered Democrats. So we do know most of these votes are going to be Democratic. But at the same time, we had people who said they weren't voting for Trump in 2016 that very much so did. So are we going to see a repeat of that process? You know, hopefully we find out on election day. But I, I by no means could say that uh, definitively. Yeah, I think it's seemingly... It's it's the Democratic Party that's coming out more to vote and younger people that are for the Democratic Party, as well as trying to remove the Republican Party from office. Um, I think that's who's more coming out or at least expressing their voice more that they are coming out. Um, but I think it's like Tyler said, it's a lot of people that are also not wanting to say that they're voting for the Republican Party. They're trying they're almost ashamed, but they're the same people that voted in 2016 for the Republican Party and that voted Trump into office. So they're, um, it's kind of, yeah, it's more of a, just a toss up. It's not, you can't really say like who it is. I mean, typically like, yeah, you would assume that if it's an early voter, it's typically it's Republican or it's Democrats, but with yeah, COVID going on, it's, it's a toss up for sure. All right. Well, I believe we're about here at the end guys, but I think, you know, it's our first episode with the long call. And 
it is going to be a very long haul. But, you know, we have to ask that question. Election day is less than four days away. So who do you think is going to be president and control the Senate and control the House? Are we going to have a split Congress still? Is it going to be this Democratic supermajority? What's everyone's thoughts and opinions on what you think is going to happen? Um, and Henry, I'm going to go ahead and go to you first and see what your opinion is. I think it's uh, pretty likely that Biden will win the presidency. Uh, even if we see a shift like we did from the polls in 2016, I still think Biden has a very good shot of getting that 270 electoral college vote and securing the presidency. With the House, I think it's almost certainly going to be uh, Democrats. They already have a pretty big advantage um, in the popular vote that will likely ripple across the states. Um, and I am not sure there's much of a good chance that Republicans can take back those suburbs that they lost in 2018. Uh, as for the Senate, it is, I am a little bit less optimistic about Democrats' chances in the Senate. I think it's almost certainly going to be uh, Republicans losing a couple seats, but whether that gets Democrats to 50 uh, or 51, uh, I think I'm a little skeptical. I think it's very possible we could end up with either still a Republican majority Senate or even possibly a 50-50 Senate, which then the vice president could break ties, which that would make it basically a Democratic Senate. So with it being a lot of just of a toss up within voting, um, as well as it had been kind of like that in 2016, I think there's, unfortunately for me, it's a, it's a strong possibility that I think that Trump will be reelected. Um, I think there's going to be quite a few Republicans that'll come out on voting day that will be that deciding factor to basically finish off the Republican votes and pull it back and bring Trump up to like past Biden's votes so far. Um, I think the Senate will, I think the Senate will be a majority, if Trump does get reelected, I think it'll continue down and kind of trickle down. So where the Senate will be mainly Republican as well as the, Dem the House will be mainly Republican as well. Um, if Biden does happen to pull through and win the election, um, I do believe that it'll also trickle down and it'll kind of even out, but I don't think that it'll make it to where it's a majority um, Democrat with both the Senate and the House. I think it'll split those for both of those. All right. And then I guess we'll go with my prediction. So I'm going to be honest. I've been playing with toss-ups. I've been creating my own maps. I'm like my own 538, just without the 40,000 runs. I'm just doing it myself, basing it off of polls. And I think as of this moment, it is just too close for me to call. I think... There's a couple ways Trump can win, um, and there's no doubt that Biden is in the lead if we look at where that electoral uh, count is coming from. But he should be in the lead because he's starting out with California, the largest block. He's starting out with New York. He's starting out with Oregon and Washington. These are all solid blue states um, compared to Trump, who uh, there's not as much of those large red states that he's going to start out with. 
Texas is looking competitive. I think Texas is going red. So I don't think that's really in play for Democrats at the moment. Um, but for that, or those reasons, I think we're looking at a really close call. I don't think we're going to see a landslide uh, victory for either candidate. But I would say it does lean in Biden's favor. So I will say it leans Biden, but I'm, I'm not going to call it uh, just because I, man, this is a close election, which I love. I love how competitive it seems it's being. When it comes to the House, Democrats are going to keep the House. I don't see Republicans really picking up any extra seats anywhere. Um, when it comes to the Senate, I think I think Collins has finally met her time in Maine. Um, unfortunately for her, I feel like she's actually been very good at being kind of bipartisan in Maine, even though she's been a Republican senator for quite a while. Um, but I do think her time has kind of came. So that's going to be another pickup for Democrats. So that's going to be, or sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit. I also think Barbara Boulier, uh, I believe that's how you say it in Kansas. I think she's going to pick that uh, Senate seat as well, which is huge for Kansas. Um, you know, we're talking about this solid red state that's slowly getting more and more of these blue victories, um, even though the government governor's race is a, a little bit of a whole conversation, a podcast in itself, if you will. Um, but I think they're going to pick up that seat. So now we're looking at 41, 40, or, sorry, 51, 49. And as far as that goes, I think uh, Arizona is going to be a very tight race. Um, and I, I really see a 50-50 Senate. And I don't remember the last time that occurred, but, you know, it, it's going to mean the Senate's no longer fun to watch. Not that the Senate's ever been super fun to watch. Uh, but it just makes who the president is that much more important because that vice president is going to be the deciding vote on probably everything. Um, that That's kind of where my predictions are laying. And I, I'm glad to hear that we're all over the place. I think it really just kind of shows what shape this election is turning into. Um, does anyone have any last thoughts uh, before we end today? All righty. Well, thank you so much for listening. This has been The Long Call with Tyler Redmond. Sierra Pate and Henry Camber. Have a good night, guys. <laughs>